It is Friday the 5th of July 2019. My name is Jeremy Medlin and welcome to episode 47 of the Stock Market Movers podcast. Just a quick reminder that nothing that I say today should be considered financial advice. And if you're looking for financial advice, I recommend that you speak to an authorised financial advisor. Before I kick off, just a, a quick shout out or request for information. I might have a few interviews coming up for the podcast. So the last interview I did, I listened back to, I thought the quality was good, but the sound quality wasn't great. So what I need to buy is a microphone. Now, what I'm looking for in a microphone is something that's not too big that I can easily transport around, something that's not too costly, and something that works well with an iPhone, what iPhone do I have? iPhone 8. Um, I'm not that savvy with technology, but if you are and can recommend anything, then, then please do get in touch. So got a, a good show ahead of us. I, I did a tour of the warehouse distribution centre during the week, which I'll, I'll, I'll get to. And of course, I'll, I'll talk about Pushpay. But we'll start off with Abano Healthcare. I think that's how you say it. They're a, a company that I'm not sure I've ever discussed on the podcast. They trade on the NZX under the ticker code ABA. And if I were to be perfectly honest, I, I don't really know that much about the company. Um, like Literally, I'm making the assumption that I do something in healthcare, but I'm deriving that from their name. So the stock has been hit hard in the last couple of years, and it's more, more than cut in half from over $10 this year to around four fifteen today. And since the wider market has been relatively resilient, this suggests to me that the business might have had a few issues over this time frame, although it's hard for me to definitively say without knowing a lot more about the company. For example, the, the business could be fine and the market might, might have just been overvalued valuing the stock before. Although that is rare in the in the current market. I've I've noticed that overvaluations seem to persist until something happens with the business. So the market seemed to be continuing with big overvaluations on a lot of stocks until something bad happens and then they get and, and often it's not actually that bad and then they then the stock gets absolutely slammed. Anyway, so they're around a hundred million dollar company today and they came out with their two thousand nineteen trading update and guidance for twenty twenty. So I'm having a, a a quick look at the website and I've actually just figured out they're dentists. I made the assumption that they're in sort of more sort of medical health, if that makes sense, but they're actually dentists, so I, I didn't know that. One of the reasons that I like to do the podcast is that I, I get to learn things like this. So they're the Lumino brand in New Zealand, which if you're a Kiwi, you've probably seen about, um, I, I, I certainly have, and Maven Dental Group. Um, I, I actually am due to go to the dentist, so I, I might visit a, a Lumino and, and check out the operation. It's always a, a good, I always like to do that sort of thing. Um, I mean, you might think it's a bit extreme with the dentist, but go and actually see places because then you get a sort of a tangible feel for what it is. I think often in the stock market, you see numbers jumping around on the screen and everything like that, and that's what you associate with a company. So I always recommend getting out and seeing stuff when you can. So a great place to do that, by the way, is the shopping mall. Anyway, so just looking at their recent annual report, admittedly it's a bit out of date, but you can tell straight away from the balance sheet that they've been quite an acquisitive company. The reason I say this is that they have $220 million of accounting goodwill in the balance sheet. So goodwill is the difference when you make an acquisition between the tangible assets of what you buy and the purchase price. So essentially the intangibles. So if you buy something for $200 that has $100 of tangible assets, then the goodwill is $100, so a simple equation. So if you make good acquisitions, then you'd expect over time that your market capitalization would exceed accounting goodwill. And why is that? So the easiest way to explain this is is with an example. Imagine you bought Coca-Cola back in the 1900s. You would have paid X amount for the tangible assets and say 
two times for, for the company. So the goodwill would have been 1x, 2x. So you would pay 2x for the company, 1x for the tangible assets, and, and maybe 1x for goodwill. Now, obviously, over time, economic goodwill of Coca-Cola has grown significantly and is probably 10,000 10, times X these days. But that does not reflect on the balance sheet. So when you see a company like Abano with accounting goodwill of $220 million and a market cap of $100 million, that suggests one of three things. Number one, the market is significantly mispricing the value of the company. Number two, the company massively overpaid for its acquisitions. Or number three, the company has found itself in some sort of trouble that has forced a revaluation. So maybe they took on more debt or, or, or whatever it could be. Anyway, just looking at the cash flow statement from the last annual report, it, it, it's a bit of a, a dog's breakfast, really. And, and maybe that's a, a, a bit harsh, but it, there's a lot going on. So net cash from operations was around $29 million, which compared to a, a market cap of $100 million, it's you know that that's a great valuation. So then they sold some interest in a subsidiary. Then they had some capital expenditure. Then they purchased some business. They paid back some debt. They had some non-controlling interest. They raised money through a dividend reinvestment scheme. They raised some money through a capital raise. They paid a dividend. It always buzzes me out when you see company rate companies raise money from the market and then pay it back out as a dividend. It, it, it seems counterintuitive to me. Anyway. It, 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 You'd imagine if it was just cash flow from operations minus capital expenditures, then debt and dividend repayments, then the stock would be trading on a lot higher multiple or a lot higher valuation now. And I, I can pretty much tell that without knowing that much about the company. So I guess, you know, again, with not knowing much about the company, so that's my disclaimer there, it, it would lo- you'd like to see some stuff simplified anyway, that's for sure. Now moving on to the next thing, undoubtedly the biggest news of the NZX this week came from Pushpay. So Pushpay are a company that we've spoken about in detail on the podcast. They trade on the NZX and ASX under the ticker code PPH. We even had founder and former CEO Chris Heaslip on the podcast, I think it was episode 22. You can head back in time and and listen to that one if you haven't already and and see what you think. So Chris Heaslip, he resigned from his position as CEO from the company at May 31st of this year. And during the week, the company announced that he would be selling 12.24 million of his shares. And that represents 4.45% of the total shares outstanding. And it's about 41% of the shares that he owns. So he's still left with the bulk of his, or at least the majority of his shareholding. And he will be left with about a 6% ownership in the company. I guess if you'd, if you'd thought about this scene and leave the company, it, it surely can't be too much of a surprise to you. But that's if you actually thought about it. Um, so based off a market cap of around $1 billion, he'll be pocketing about $45 million Kiwi, minus all the... <laughs> investment banking fees and everything he'll no doubt have to pay, which is is not a a bad day's work in anyone's language. Now, of course, it's a little more than a a day's work. Chris was one of the founders of Pushpay, and being the former CEO, he was obviously instrumental in in getting it to where it is today. So as opposed to thinking about it as as a day's work, and I know a lot of people begrudge these sorts of people that that get these big paydays, but I think the best way of thinking about it is he's getting the rewards for taking the risk, being entrepreneurial and, and setting up a successful company. You know, imagine how many people and and myself included in the in the early days sort of when you heard about a company that's going to be doing processing church payments in the United States you thought you, you sort of thought oh that's a bit niche and moved on from it but you know he's getting the rewards for for making something that's no one had really thought of into saying really successful so 
it's important to, to take note that he isn't actually any richer after the transaction. All, he, all he's done is transferred wealth from ownership in a company to cash. So he actually might be a bit poorer if you felt that the push pay stock was undervalued and actually worth more than what it was sold for. So likewise, he could also be richer if the stock was overvalued. That would depend on your view. So there, there are two ways to look at this. I'll, I'll, I'll describe what they are and then I'll give you my view. So one way to look at it and it's to take the view that insider selling is always a bad thing and that associated with that view is that you're thinking he must not have the confidence in the company to keep his money invested. And that view from time to time does make sense. And there's been some examples in the past of where key people have sold out of companies right before they've gone down the drain. So yes, I guess you can't ignore this as a possibility. And I guess as a shareholder, you would rather see him hold all his stock and and there's obviously something to admire about founders that remain fully invested but that, that I'd say that's the exception rather than the rule and, and and think about what you would do in this situation if you had stock that was worth 100 million can can you blame him for for taking 45 million out i mean what would you do imagine that paid i mean you'd set your your grandkids and your grandkids grandkids up for life it's a no-brainer i'd I'd almost certainly do the same it would be burning a a, a pretty big hole in my pocket and just as a as a comparison you know you think of all the property owners in auckland that have suddenly found themselves with all this property that they can sell for a million dollars you know they wouldn't have dreamed of that when they bought a lot of these houses and plenty of them have moved to Tauranga and, and bought a house for half as much and, and they're stoked with the extra 500k in the bank so it, when, you, when you put it in that sort of context and that sort of day-to-day level you can understand selling out so yeah I mean I, I can't say definitively that it's a a bad thing or a, or a good thing that he's selling down but I'd say on the balance of probability it, it, it probably doesn't matter and I think, in all likelihood, it's it's more than more than likely going to be a non-event. And I I think that you'd be making a mistake if you were selling the stock or buying the stock for this news. I think it's just one of those things that you 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 can expect. And I I would certainly be doing, or at least thinking about doing, the same thing if I was in his, in, in his situation. So during the week, I did a tour of the North Island Distribution Centre for the Warehouse. I did this with the Auckland Shareholders Association. I've said this in the past, but I recommend to anyone listening that you join your local shareholders association. They're all over the country. For the $150 per year or whatever it is, you get a lot of value, such as company tours, presentations from CEOs and all sorts of things. Anyway, I went on a tour of the Warehouse Distribution Centre. I'll quickly describe it and give you a couple of I guess take backs and a couple of things that I noticed I have discussed the warehouse in the past you you'll know them they're a significant New Zealand retailer I think their revenues are saying like three billion dollars or whatever it might be they're in the warehouse warehouse stationery Noli mean torpedo seven and a bunch of other assets that you may not realize so they literally employ thousands of people across the country and they trade on the NZX under the ticker code WHS so I took a tour of the distribution facility. The first thing you'll notice, and I guess you would expect it, is that security is tight and, and obviously health and safety is a big deal. So I think the the, the next level up in, in terms of security would be like a, a, a prison pretty much, you know, a minimum security prison. That, that's the sort of level you're talking about. So it, it makes sense when you think about it. The facility has literally hundreds of millions of dollars of inventory passed through it each year. So it's also massive. 
So the, the first thing they, they pointed out to us in the presentation was that you can see it clearly when you fly into Auckland. It's a massive building and it's expanded over the years as well. And, you know, we used to say the big red shed when we described the warehouse, and this is definitely the biggest red shed I've, I'd ever been in. At one point, we looked down the length of the building and there was a chap in the forklift at the other end and he looked tiny. You know, it's, it's huge and it must have been one of the biggest buildings in New Zealand. I'm sure there's maybe some Auckland International Airport buildings that are bigger, but it's, it's certainly massive. So we were only in a, one part of it as well. There were, there were two other massive sites that, that we didn't get to see. So one side of it almost resembled a port with just shipping containers full of stock that was being moved around by one of those massive shipping container cranes. I'm, I'm sure they have a more technical name, so I'm just describing what I saw. But basically, the, the stuff comes into the place, it gets sorted by a combination of human-machine automation, and then gets distributed to the various locations throughout the throughout the big warehouse and then distributed from there throughout the North Island. So they also run the e-commerce distribution from there. So we got a tour of that. It was quite interesting. Um, a couple of takeaways or at least views that I developed. The first would be that you hear about the threat of e-commerce to traditional retail and that's that's an almost everyday thing, which is obviously a, a tangible threat. But when I was looking at the warehouse distribution, what they had on site, you know, if you are going to be a serious online retailer and that is planning to compete with the re the, the warehouse stores as an example, it, it would take a significant investment, like a significant investment. You know, it's obviously not unmanageable to unimaginable to see Amazon and other businesses moving here, but you know, I don't think it would be as simple as is turning on a switch, which a lot of people think. And my gut feel is that with New Zealand being so isolated, the online online retail has been slower moving here. And I think this has given established brands such as the warehouse a, a runway to watch and watch what's happened overseas and prepare for it. My, my gut feel is that online retail in New Zealand will eventually be dominated by brands that are already established. And that's just my gut feel, I could be wrong. And this is because they already have the distribution, the store network, and most importantly, like I said, the runway to prepare for it. I also get the feeling that our market is so small. You know, I was talking to a Chinese fellow during the week and he was asking me how many people are in New Zealand. He goes, what, three million? I said, no, it's actually probably more like five. And he's like, there are hundreds of cities in China that you haven't even heard of that have five million people. So, you know, that that's the sort of size we're talking about. And if, if you can... If you're already an established e-commerce player in, in some of these markets, you're probably going to be focusing on those cities first, if that makes sense. So that's just an example anyway. So I get the feeling that our market is so small, it might not be worth the return on investment for big overseas companies to come in. Although I suspect that some still will, and you hear of Costco and Ikea and, and things like that, which are undoubtedly going to provide more competition for companies like the warehouse. But I, I my gut feel is that the established players in the market are probably going to be the ones that do most of the online retail and there could be new companies that pop up and everything like that but that's just my gut feel so the other thing that i noticed and this is not unique to the warehouse more a comment on retail in, in general is that retailers have to spend money each year just to stand still it's not a bad thing it's just a fact and that is why it should be a red flag if you ever see a retailer talking about ebitda because you know Ignoring depreciation is a pretty important cost for a retail so a retailer. So the reason you have to spend money is that retail is always involving. I think the 
the cause of this is is that everyone can see what you're doing and, and then they copy it. And the book I would recommend reading on this is called Made in America by Sam Walton. It's I've got it on the Stock Market Movers website, actually, have a look. And this is an amazing book about the founder of Walmart and his story. He, he talks about back in the day going around all his competitors and writing down their prices. So he'd go across the road when he had his first store and write down the competitors' prices and, and go back to his store and slash them. And even when, and you know, you see companies like this, like Amazon, for example, doing it these days on the internet, they send out their internet bots and get the prices from elsewhere. And, you know, so it's it's same things happening today. And even when Walmart was a big and successful company, he was still going around competitors with a voice recorder taking notes. So, and when you think about it, the warehouse, they, they pretty much copied the Walmart model in New Zealand. So as soon as something works in retail, people copy it. So you always need to spend money to either improve what you're doing or, or catch up with what the competitors are doing. So that's that's always been the case in, the, in retail and it always will be. So another thing I, I picked up on is that, and it's and it's not unique to the warehouse again, but it's it's unique to any old company, I think, is that the warehouse is nearly 40 years old now, and it's been a publicly traded company since the early 90s. And I think any time you have a company that is that old, then you'll have some systems that haven't been updated. Um, and the reason for this is, is just because if, if, if a system worked 10 years ago and it's worked for a long period of time, why would you spend the money to update it, especially if the efficiency gained isn't that big? Of course, it gets to a point where you have to update. So part of what they're doing now as a company is going around and updating systems and some technology. So it'll be interesting to see how if, if they can transfer this upgrade to the bottom line. So I'll be looking forward to that. And a lot of people don't like retail as an investment, including the the great Warren Buffett. I'm not so put off by it, however, and there there are two reasons for this. In, in general, I understand it, and I think being a consumer for the last 30 years or so means that I can see what is working and, and what is not pretty early on. Just, you know, you, you already have an understanding of it from being a consumer. I also think that the surviving retailers from this retail apocalypse have in the most part, emerged with pretty conservative balance sheets and are so unloved by the market that the stocks are cheap. Of course, that's a sweeping generalisation. It's not true for everything. But I wouldn't be surprised if, in general, certain retail stocks perform reasonably well as investments over the next few years. You know, that certainly won't shoot the lights out. You're not going to get any A2 milk kind of returns or afterpay touch kind of returns or anything like that. But my bet is that if you, if you buy well and... You know, that's where you make your money in, in, in investments is by buying well, then you'll probably achieve a satisfactory outcome over the next few years. Okay, that's that's all I've got, all I've got time for today. Um, There's a slightly shorter episode than normal because I've had, a, to be honest, a, a pretty busy week. So many thanks again for listening into the podcast. As a reminder that nothing that I said today should be considered financial advice. If you're looking to find out more about the podcast, go to www.stockmarketmovers.co.nz or find us and give it a like by searching on Facebook and on Twitter as well. Make sure also to share with your friends. If you want to email me, it is jeremy at stockmarketmovers.co.nz. Please email me if you've got any, if you know anything about microphones as well. Once again, my name is Jeremy Medlin, and this has been episode 47 of the Stock Market Movers podcast for Friday, the 5th of July, 2019. We'll see you all again next week.